Welcome to the Savage Reading Podcast. This is James. Today on the podcast, we're doing something a bit different than we normally do. We'll be presenting a conversation uh, with Mark and myself and three panelists who participated in a recent conference on the counterculture at the Institute for the Advanced Study of the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. It's something that I had been working on since November of last year with IASH, and we finally had the conference in April. Uh, there were about 12 participants, and uh, we got three of them together uh, to talk with us about the idea of the counterculture, the counterculture of the past, uh, where the counterculture articulates with art, politics, the state, and where the counterculture might be found today. Our first panelist that you'll be hearing is Professor Jeremy Gilbert at the University of East London. He is the author of Common Ground, Democracy and Collectivity in an Age of Individualism. Professor Gilbert was one of two keynote speakers at the conference, and he gave a talk um, earlier in the day on the relationship between counterculture and liberalism and even neoliberalism. The second voice that you'll hear is Benjamin Serby, who is doing his PhD in history at Columbia University. Ben gave a talk on the Dialectics of Liberation Congress of 1967 in London. And our third panelist is Dr. Stuart Smith from the University of Newcastle, um, who specializes on the avant-garde in Scotland. And Stuart discussed the role of the counterculture and avant-garde in contemporary Scotland. My apologies for the lack of female participants in this conversation. All of the panelists at the conference were invited to participate, but due to travel constraints and illnesses, this conversation wasn't quite as diverse as we would have liked. This was a very wide-ranging discussion. It's about 45 minutes long. There are discussions of utopianism, the state, the beats, Marxism, socialism, psychoanalysis, drug use, and although it doesn't strictly follow the remit of a literature podcast, the conversation does delve into literature and the counterculture, particularly in Scotland. So we'll be talking a little bit about uh, Alexander Trotchy, Hugh McDermott, Ian Hamilton Finley, Edward Morgan, and a few others. I opened up the conversation with a question about whether or not the counterculture is a purely reactive phenomena, always saying no to a particular iteration or perception of the dominant culture. And if it's not purely reactive, then what is it? And just before I move on to the conversation itself, I just wanted to note that while it is comprehensible, the room that we're in tended to be a little bit echoey. So you'll hear some shuffling and sneezing, but I hope that's not too distracting. Okay, I hope you enjoy. Counterculture, as I would use the term anyway, uh, I don't think ever ever is just reactive. That it's always um, that the term implies something much more ambitious and more utopian than, say, a subculture or alternative culture or just a or, or just a kind of oppositional series of gestures. And I think it's so as I understand counterculture in, in the sort of classical sense. Um, it's not primarily reactive. It's primarily sort of utopian in the sense that it has a, it has a, it's, 
you know, it's it's imagining a world or a form of life which would be informed like as fully as possible by those cla- the sort of classic Enlightenment values of, sort of liberty and equality and sort of solidarity all together in some way. And it's reacting. What it's, what it's reacting to is the things that it sees as obstructing the realization of that utopian possibilities. But I think it's that utopian vision that sort of comes first for me, anyway, as I as I think of it. I mean, to the extent that we can generalize about all countercultures, if we can even define what that is, right? Um, but the, the one I'm most familiar with in the 1960s is definitely a, a critical discourse, you know, posed in, in response to the existing culture, to the dominant culture, but at the same time, prefiguring the transcendence of the elements of that culture that were seen as wanting, as, as oppressive, as, you know, repressive. So it's kind of in a dialectical relationship to the sort of dominant culture, um, both reacting to it and trying to transcend it. Uh, I mean, can I uh, sort of ask, um, in terms of like this sort of utopian element that's in inherent in counterculture, is there a kind of end of history um, like impulse uh, that countercultures are playing off of that we can hit a utopian state in which um, the the, uh, the the struggles that kind of keep history moving have actually been solved, um, or is there an awareness within counterculture that that history is always going to be moving forward and we are just sort of one instance in that? Well, I think there's a tendency towards millenarianism. Mm-hmm. But I think that tendency, I mean, this is just a cliche of sort of sociology of religion or whatever, really, that millenarianism is almost always a kind of reaction formation to a condition of weakness or, or really a condition of imminent defeat or recent defeat. So I would say there's less of that, the, the, more, the, clo- the, the closer you get to a situation where it looks like the counterculture has some chance of realising some of its goals, actually, the less there is of that. The, le- the, the less there is of that millenarian belief that somehow you're, you're just on the verge of the end of history and then everything could be, could be solved at once. Mm. And I think um, the more, the, the, more the, the, the further you get from a situation in which it looks like anything can actually be realised, the more people tend to, or at least some people will, you know, rather than just collapse into despair or get, get into this kind of, that kind of, end, that sort of end of history fantasy. I mean, what I'm saying, I mean, that, that is basically, I mean, that's a sort of Gramscian answer, really, because as a good Gramscian, I assume that, you know, you only really get anywhere politically by not having that sort of, you know, belief that you can end history by recognising that politics will always go on and you have to be to some extent strategic, you might be utopian. And I think that the, the healthier and more vigorous, you know, the kind of movement on any scale, really, the, the more we will have that. But I, so I think that. It's true that that is a tendency historically, but I think it's usually historically at the moment, uh, at the moment when uh, actually when things are weak. I mean, that's precisely why I think it's precisely at the moment in the mid seventies when it's pretty clear that the, the new left has been defeated in America, that you, you get all these cults, you get these kind of death cults, you know, because mm. that's you know, it's a kind of reaction formation to that mm. to that defeat. I mean, I think that not not all countercultures. Um, posed the kind of um, solutions to the problems that they were, you know, answering uh, in the same, to the same degree of generality, right? That, that um, they were going to put an end to all forms of domination and repression, which is what I think 
elements at least of the 1960s counterculture were claiming and so to that extent there is i think almost implicitly an end of history there a kind of notion that all forms of social conflict or even internal conflict psych like in the psyche will be overcome in some kind of new world um and you know um that isn't to say that no one had ever said or thought that before but i think that that is such a strong kind of component of um, the 1960s counterculture. I mean, you have earlier countercultures, the utopian socialists in the 1800s and so on, um, but they have a much more kind of, I think, specific target in industrial capitalism. They don't necessarily have a solution to that that involves anything on a kind of systemic level, but there is a kind of, I think, I, I would argue maybe a less kind of um, thoroughgoing kind of attempt to um, sublate all forms of domination. I mean, it's interesting you make that reference to the end of history, because, you know, that's, I mean, it's the end, it's, it's his response to the neoliberal end of history rhetoric, the devil they're going, really, with his big critique on, of, of both neoliberal kind of eschatology and Marxian eschatology. Mm -hmm. but, and, um, and what's often remembered, I would say, the liberal reading of Derrida always remembers the critique of Marxist eschatology. Mm -hmm. um, and it forgets that he's, he, that he's that's, that's not even the primary point of the book. The primary point of Spectres of Marx is to make a critique of neoliberal eschatology and to say that you must never stop reading Marx mm -hmm. to understand like capitalism and modernity. I think that's, um, I don't know what the point of that is apart from to <laughs> like a rhetorical attack on liberal interpretations of Derrida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I used the, the, the phrase um, end of history and then I immediately thought that was Fukuyama who could not be less counterculture. Uh, <laughs> right, maybe kind of uh, moving on to the, this question about um, the 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 problem with counterculture is always being kind of appropriated the the, the vulnerability that's in uh, counterculture maybe I can direct this to, to Stuart because what you talked about earlier today was um, in some sense uh, I thought interesting because you were discussing um, the counterculture and its relationship with the state. I mean, specifically the Scottish state. Yeah. Um, and I think traditionally understood, like that kind of traditional counterculture, any kind of alignment with the state mm -hmm. would have rendered the counterculture kind of automatically neutral and invalid. You mm -hmm. know, there there is that strong kind of trend there. So um, maybe how do you think that that um, maybe counterculture today kind of squares that circle, like um, that that there seems to be a much more kind of comfortable relationship with the state. Maybe not totally comfortable, mm -hmm. but a bit more comfortable. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very interesting one. And I think actually some of the things that have happened in the last couple of years since independent revolution, the referendum, since NDREF, um, that's there was a kind of maybe perception that or the kind of narrative that came in and particularly from sort of unionist and conservative sides but also on the kind of pro-indy left to some extent as well um that the scottish cultural establishment as, as it were uh, were on broadly on board with the snp and independence broadly kind of left liberal um and therefore not very countercultural, but maybe historically were able to set themselves up as oppositional to Thatcherism, um, and and then um, and then um, 
subsequently David Cameron's government and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so that's maybe allowed a relatively mainstream Scottish sort of main Scottish cultural world, as it were, um, to to kind of present itself as oppositional. Um, and some of those figures do have radical politics, there's no doubt about that. Um, others are working as broadly left liberal. Um, and But what's interesting, particularly in the last couple of years, um, both in culture, politics and culture, is a frustration with the SNP from the Scottish left to people particularly who are a part of maybe the radical independence campaign or sympathetic to that. Um, who, who didn't just want to um, see independence as an end in itself, but as an opportunity to create a new kind of society um, and politics. And uh, obviously frustrations and sort of realisation that the SNP <coughs> effectively, although it kind of is, is progressive and left liberal, it's, uh, in, it's, it's still broadly neoliberal and even Blairite um, in, a, in a sense. So instead of the sort of argument of the referendum that uh, independence was actually about salvaging the British welfare state um, and there is some truth in that um, and the SNP have certainly mitigated against the worst aspects of uh, austerity um, but nonetheless they're still pursuing a broadly sort of neoliberal programme um, sort of Scotland open for business as it were mm -hmm. and culture plays into that through kind of um, the use of culture to kind of build Scotland the brand um, and so you see a lot of support for culture um, working on, on that level and obviously artists are canny enough to know when they're being exploited um, and and you know it's a case of as always artists have always done in terms of patronage or funding as yeah. you you know you work with it and, and you're trying to work in and around um, those uh, and, and work with those contradictions um, so to sort of bring that to the point uh, about whether I think there is increasingly along with that kind of political counterculture um there's now a kind of new culture and counterculture emerging, um, should I say, um, that's increasingly fed up with the kind of maybe what has become the Scottish cultural establishment. Um, and I feel there's a kind of, in terms of sort of the 90s kind of generation is still very dominant. Um, so people like Irvin Welsh and um, so the bands that emerged in the 90s, Mogwai, Bell and Sebastian and so on, are very much the kind of dominant um, cultural uh, figures. And uh, while they once might have been underground countercultural, um, and they still kind of train on that, at least some like Irvin Welsh does, you know. Um, <laughs> you're like, what I'm the bad boy of Scottish literature. And, like, um, and it's pretty tedious when you've got some, you know, Evan Welsh going on about taking eckies and stuff and like, whoa, check me out. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, I think the sort of younger generation, there's, are clearly, and there's, I mean, it's, it's just something reflected more broadly um, in culture and society, um, sort of generational attitudes towards um, sort of social liberalism, the kind of social liberalism that we saw of under sort of Blair in, in, the, in the 90s and continued by Cameron as well to some extent, but the limitations of that as well. So sort of radical critiques of that um, and the kind of um, attempts to make things generally inclusive rather than just purely a kind of superficial nod, but actually change the, uh, the structure of society. And, um, and people think about how we can do that in terms of art. Um, um, and, and the kind of things I talked about were examples of uh, promoters and um, people running small labels and things like that, putting on gigs and trying to make up an inclusive space 
and include different people, um, be aware of the um, lack of access uh, through various uh, structural oppressions and um, that, that can uh, keep people out of arts um, and not just assume you're having your fun, so that's okay. I think also in terms of cultural policy, the the big flashpoint recently with Creative Scotland's latest funding round, uh-huh. uh, where they they got hit from both the kind of art establishment as well as the um, more grassroots organisations. There's a tendency to give money to um, sort of bureaucratic or bureaucrats giving money to bu- other bureaucrats. Um, so there's lots of kind of agencies got funding, mm-hmm. and there's also a feeling from the arts community at large that uh, the lack of transparency from in this kind of arm's length cultural body um, handing out funding and some of the weird decisions that were made and some of the people who got funding pulled from them. So theatre companies that were um, would practice social inclusion for you know so um, uh, for example sort of theatre companies who who work with the disabled actors um, or something like the Transmission Gallery in, in Glasgow which has been uh, has, a, has a great history of, of, of doing interesting art but particularly recently has been very um, doing very important work in terms of opening up access it's now got a its committee is entirely made up of people of colour um, at the moment um, and they've been doing a lot of work to um, in that field to open up access and ask questions about some of the the assumptions about Scotland is this kind of nice progressive left to centre country um, and I think it's it's kind of unpacking that a bit um, without trying to sort of over get overly carried away and say you know everything's terrible um, you know so you accept the gains that have been made but also work to improve it as well and kind of get away from that slightly self-congratulatory rhetoric that you got around the kind of indie ref you know we are you're nice and progressive and we're better than england i mean like uh because in my own research like i i started doing some stuff on like the relationship between like counterculture and nationalism or counterculture Mm. of the state and uh we we talked a little bit earlier today about like the the 1962 Mm. uh conference and I don't, I mean, I, 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 I won't pretend that I, I have figured out everything about that conference, mm. but that that argument between Alexander Trachi and Hugh McDermott, mm. um, where Trachi seems to suggest that there, um, there was no possibility of a real counterculture in Scotland because it's just too parochial, sorry, too provincial. Uh, uh, Whereas uh, Hugh McDermott seems to to suggest, and I might be getting this wrong, that like an official Scottish culture, because of its relationship to Britain at large, makes it almost automatically yeah. a counterculture. Yeah. Yeah. Like um and so it, it like he had no problem going back to like writing in Scots. Yeah. Uh, because that that was a countercultural move mm. uh, for him. Yeah. And I'm curious if that kind of tendency is still like playing out um mm. in in Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's that kind of uh that kind of analysis has been kind of predominant right through to the nineties, maybe in the kind of dream state uh, idea that came. So it's uh, Don, Donny O'Rourke's uh, poetry anthology from the early nineties, uh-huh. um, which uh, collects sort of the new Scottish poets, and it's called Dream State. And the kind of Dream State theory is that um, it's basically the kind of unelected uh, legislators kind of idea. So in the uh, the failure of the nineteen seventy nine uh, devolution um, means that you have in, you have cultural independence to take the place of political independence, um, and it kind of signs up 
kind of basically, you know, sort of the kind of new wave of Scottish writers that, and also musicians and artists that all come through in the 80s um, form this new kind of republic of letters and, and so on um, and kind of help shape the uh, devolution and then the, the independence re- referendum. And, and I mean, this has come under a lot of critique in the last few years. It's, it's obviously very romantic. Yeah. It's understandable why artists <laughs> like it because it flatters them. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of, and it's not to deny that important work was done, uh, particularly after 79, to say, well, you know what, uh, where do we go from here? And, and what is the role of culture? And, you know, this is, a, this is a nation that's voted not to be independent, as it were, and here comes satirism. Um, so a double whammy. Um, so it's really kind of thinking about rethinking Scottish identity and Scottish culture, um, as well as a kind of and there's obviously political culture on the side of that as well, and a lot of interesting things that there's sort of countercultural events that happen. Um, there's a, also it was the Druist did an interesting conference a couple of years ago, and when Kelman was involved, with a, and he brought Chomsky over, and there's a famous photo of Chomsky and James, uh, and James Kelman sitting in a pub in Govan. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> Chomsky's having a wee half pint. <laughs> um, but that kind of thing is you can see that kind of fitting in a kind of traditional radical Scottish uh, culture and politics um, uh, and, and Kelman was at the time of the Glasgow um, yeah that, that, that kind of uh, construction of Scottish uh, kind of modern Scottish identity uh, became more institutionalised as well with things like the Glasgow Garden Festival and the Glasgow's the city of uh, Europe cult the city of culture in 1990 uh, and Kelman actually critiqued that um, from in saying it was bourgeois and so on um, but yeah, that kind of going back to that McDermott thing, that has been quite a prominent idea. Um, and and Trockey's idea of it was it uh, Scotland won't be free until the last minute. Church of Scotland minister is uh, is strung up with the copy of the final edition of the Sunday Post. Um, <laughs> Presumably, what Trockey would have wanted it seems to have as part of is an avant-garde in mm. the kind of early twentieth century, like modernist, yeah, you know, internationalism, <clears throat> cosmopolitan thing. So that's a, yeah, it's an interesting question as to how you understand like. That kind of early twenty, that early kind of modernist avant-gardeism, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, in relation to that kind of you know neo-nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. you know, and how you understand either of those in relation to a notion of counterculture, because that is that is interesting, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. clearly, counterculture when it emerges as a, as a kind of used term in the late sixties is oh something, you know, it owes something to all of those ideas actually, but it's also doing slightly different work. I think it's mm-hmm. trying to you know suggest that. Both of that kind of avant-gardeism can be sort of universalised into beyond, you know, beyond the kind of aesthetic elite, you know, to a much more generalised you know, sort of set mm-hmm. lifestyle experiments that also have a political valency, and um, and it wouldn't have seen itself as being really allied, you know, with kind of nationalism, but any kind of mm-hmm. nationalism in those, in those contexts. Mm-hmm. But you can see how that types into. I mean, the debate. With the debate on the relationship between universalist, cosmopolitan, mm. future oriented politics and forms of nationalism goes well right back into the nineteenth century, within the socialist movement, the communist movement, the question of whether you can have forms of nationalism which are progressive, which are forward oriented, which are contributing in the medium to the long term, to the long term goal of universal emancipation. And it goes back to you know, Trotsky and Lenin like debating the national question, Marx talking about the Irish, I mean, Marx like endorses Irish nationalism, Irish, you know, the form of Irish nationalism which will turn into Irish republicanism. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, in, I mean, Scott, I mean, in Ireland, this is, this is all going off a tangent. I mean, I mean in, in Ireland, they have the way of, 
the historic way of resolving that is to try to make a distinction between nationalism and republicanism and to claim that republicanism is not a nationalism that it, it doesn't or it doesn't possess any of the um, any of the conservative features of nationalism mm-hmm. that, that therefore it does indeed constitute sort of you know, it's, a, it's a counterculture to British imperialism so really, you know, I don't know of anywhere else that that's happened, actually, but it's really, it's an interesting, I've never been totally convinced by it, but it's mm. an interesting argument that they try to make, because they, they are the Republicans, like the Sinn Féin absolutely reject the description of them as nationalists. Mm. They say we're not nationalists, we're Republicans, and because we're, but we're ultimately, our ultimate goal is the international socialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, I mean, that's interesting, like, particularly people in, uh, who are maybe kind of more aligned with radical India say, well, I'm not a nationalist, I want, I want independence, but I'm not a nationalist. So there's that kind of deliberate distinction, which you might, which might be a bit, um, maybe trying to have the cake and eat it a wee bit. But I can help. But I'm also very sympathetic to it because kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't vote for independence for nationalistic reasons or chauvinistic reasons. Um, it's simply because I thought, you know, British state is reform under the British state is, is impossible and so on. Um, but of course, the rise of Corbyn has uh, challenged that a wee bit. But, but again, that's. Maybe one of the flaws of Corbynism is that it still sticks to that kind of Benite faith in, in the parliamentary system that isn't really interested in reform on that level, at least not as an immediate goal. Um, but uh, actually it's interesting you bring up the avant-garde because that's something I've uh, thought about in terms of Scotland and McDermott as a, people like McDermott as an avant-garde. Um, and, you know, is it... In a sense, he's a modern. He's maybe an avant-garde figure in Scot in Scotland. He's, he's sort of the vanguard of of modernism in Scotland. He's kind of um, right out there. There's nobody as a um, yeah. There's a man to say around 1990 when mm. across. He's not just Scot like Scot Scottish literature. People like Kelvin with it. Mm. Even mm. you know, Pang Welsh from his first writing just short stories are seen as the vanguard. That's yeah. why you look, if you're looking yeah. at within British literature for an avant-garde, it's that. Yeah, it's the Scots style yeah. When I, was, when I was 20, that was the only stuff I would, I would read in contemporary literature, was like Kelman and mm-hmm. things like that, cause yeah. or Alistair Gray, because yeah. see that was where it was seen as that was where the avant garde actually was. Yeah, and Kelman is in many ways an avant garde writer, because almost to see him as a dialect writer is. Yeah, is, that's true. I, 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 you know, he's, he's always kind of resisted that um, because he's. Every, his language in every novel he writes is different. Yeah, no. Um, and he's kind of. It's a deliberate effort at defamiliarisation. Yeah, it's, it's not an exercise in like civil fantasies. No, no. Um, but and he sometimes, yeah, that idea of him as a kind of social realist uh, doesn't really fit the bill. Um, and yeah, so. And the chalky one's interesting that. So were you kind of positioning him more as a kind of a figure who's part. I kind of. I would see it this way as he's more of a figure. Of the fifties than the sixties, yeah. Although he became a kind of cultural yeah, yeah, celebrity, yeah. he barely wrote anything. Yeah, he, he didn't write anything after sixty, apart from one failed novel. And like, yeah. um, and in many ways, his kind of milieu is the fifties. It's Merlin. It's that kind of uh, um, post-war European. Well, Contemporary um, is closer to you, like the It's closer to the surrealist. It's that notion of kind of sexual liberation. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. no gender politics at all. Yeah, so yeah. Now. Some an, an excess, mm. you know, a little yeah. being kind of bohemian, which in a way, I mean, it's an interesting to contrast that because that's it's a cliche about the counterculture, the official, mm. the sixties counter, the psychedelic counterculture that was hedonistic and decadent. But actually, mm. I think again, I think that's inaccurate. And mm. actually, there was this critique from 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 the psychedelic movement. Mm-hmm. There's this critique of like the avant-gardeism of 
of people like Chucky and Burroughs and they're kind mm. of getting wasted yeah. and he's doing loads of smack. And there's actually a critique of that from these people mm. who are just who are into heroin, who are into LSD and clean living. Like, mm. It's quite a different mm. thing in that way. Yeah, that kind of existentialist thing versus this more kind of affirmative 60s yes. yeah. um, neo-modernism, you know, if you think of the sort of Marshall Berman description of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I kind of see, in the Scottish context, there's a kind of new modernism with the kind of things people like Ian Hamilton Finlay and Evie Morgan are doing with their concrete poetry. Um, and uh, But again, they're interesting figures because they're both already in about 40 by the time they kind of hit their stride in the mid-60s. And although um, Finlay isn't socially conservative, but he has this kind of quite classicist sense of... Uh, Dirty things are not what literature is about, and he thinks he's John Calder is a dirty man. <laughs> he thinks he thinks uh, he rakes around in dustbins and thinks uh, uh, thinks sex is avant garde and all this kind of stuff, and it can seem a bit prudish. Um, but Edwin Morgan, on the other hand, is a closeted gay man, and he he's writing these beautiful and very sexy love poems in the sixties, um, but they're obviously you know carefully coded um, and concealed. Um, so he he's an interesting figure in terms of moving towards that social uh, liberation in the Scottish context. But again, he only comes out uh, when he's 80 um, and much later on. Um, there's always that sense of like Scotland, the Scottish 60s happened in the 70s sort of thing, or it happened to a very small group of people. Um, there's always kind of small bohemian circles you can point to. Um, so it's sort of folk literature seen in early 60s Edinburgh that kind of spawns things like the Paper by Bookshop and the Edinburgh Writers um, Conference as well as the kind of sort of more bohemian folk scene with Bert Yanch and emerging from that. I was thinking in relation to your question, to bring it back to some of your interest, Ben, about you know, the state and the appropriation. I mean, there is, I mean, the, the completely conventional standard kind of PBS, BBC account of the counterculture, which I don't think is necessarily wrong is that it emerges as a format, as a distinctive formation of term, pretty much in direct response to the assassinations of King and Bobby Kennedy. Mm-hmm. But up until that point, there's a real aspiration that maybe, you know, you can use this, maybe you're going to be able to use the state mm-hmm. to make, to, to achieve a lot of the gains. I mean, mm-hmm. people like the Diggers obviously don't think that. Mm-hmm. But even people like Ginsburg, I think, I think up until the end of the 60s, up until that moment, they're, they're not totally convinced that you won't be able to use the Democratic Party. And that's why, mm-hmm. part, I mean, there's no point having a big demonstration at the Democratic Convention if you don't think, you think it's a totally lost cause. So I think there is a sense that there is one reading according to which that affirm. That kind of affirmativeness is that affirmativeness is also, you know, uh, you know, in the, um, you know, is partly expressed through a certain kind of, you know, arguably naive, you know, faith that there might be the state might deliver something. I mean, even like Leary thinks the things you're going to, you know, Leary up until sort of 66, 67 thinks you're going to turn on like the senators. Like that's how you're going to get your politi- <laughs> that's how you're going to get your political goals. It's not until quite. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, you know more about this than me. I think it's really after Bobby Kennedy, after Bobby Kennedy assassinated, there's like, there's no route, there's no political route. I, yeah, I'm not sure that I would entirely agree with that, that uh, people who we traditionally associate with the counterculture in, in the United States context, at least, would have seen <clears throat> the Democratic Party and the state as it existed at the time as a kind of avenue towards the kind of social transformation that they envisioned. But... Um, I do think that there is a change that happens around 68 and the change is really from one of envisioning 
um, politics just more broadly, uh, a kind of more decentralized kind of democratic grassroots politics um, as uh, uh, possible, right? Um, to, to one that's a bit more, there's the kind of desperado violence of the weatherman and, um, and then the kind of just the implosion of SDS. Um, no, I wouldn't want to overstate that as the kind of like end point for the new left because it's of course after SDS kind of implodes that actually the anti-war movement reaches its pinnacle in terms of the size and scale of, of demonstrations. But um, uh, yeah, I, I guess just to, to circle back, I think that that's, it, it's, it's hard to, for me to think of anyone who was really explicitly in favor of a strategy of like taking over the party yeah, structure. You're right. You're right. Um, but uh, I, I want to go back to this question though about the avant-garde because it's really interesting to me now that I'm thinking about it, talking about Trochi as someone who's very much of the 50s. I was thinking about Ginsburg because he really straddles yeah, yeah. this kind of divide. He comes out of the beats really as early as the, the late 40s, um, right? The kind of San Francisco poets, uh, Kenneth Rexroth and, and Robert Duncan and, and so on. Like that's the origins of this kind of, this real counterculture in the sense of like, this is a subculture of people whose lifestyle and artistic aesthetic norms, et cetera, are all like in such um, opposition to the totality of the culture around them. At least that's how they understood themselves. And the 60s is this much more kind of affirmative moment. Um, and I think, uh, you know, by the 70s, you have the kind of pervasive back to the land culture. And it's drawing on <coughs> something that isn't the avant-garde. It's actually folk culture, right? But what both have in common, avant-garde and folk culture, is a kind of, they're, they're not mass culture, right? They're not part of the kind of commercialized sphere of mass media and um i don't know that's just so, something that seems consistent but it's i'm having trouble separating out like where the break is or where the tensions are between those two things and how they get articulated at some point i'm sort of curious about that because it's interesting to think about ginsburg in particular as someone who kind of like leans both ways um so, yeah. No, I got a lot. I think that's right, yeah. Ginsburg. And he is. I mean, Ginsburg is the paradigmatic figure. And I think he's a really, I always think he's a really underestimated figure. If you go into it, um, like I've, I've heard of, like, if you, if, you if you look at his kind of political speeches or kind of all the interviews, like that interview with him, in, was it in, what was it? Was it in Time? Was it in Life or Playboy? It was one of some major interview begins from the late 60s when he when really when he gets an opportunity to really get into the political analysis I always think he's completely spot completely understands what they're trying to do mm -hmm. he does the at least around 60 67 you need a kind of you need both both this kind of avant-garde utopianism and the kind of mass strategy and he's completely he's not naive about you know the kind of role that's going to be played by the state or capital and you know, he's willing to entertain kind of by any means necessary range of strategies mm. from engaging with the Democratic Party to setting up I mean it's also it's not kind of either or part I think part of the reason as you said he doesn't go he kind of seemed to go both ways is because for him it's not either or it's mm. like, well, let's try all of it you know, mm. let's do communes let's try and take over the Democratic Party let's set up new organisations so you know, he's a pragmatist you know, he's a classic exactly. American yeah. pragmatist exactly but it's also to me that's a proper ground shield the problem mm. is that that's fighting the war of position, actually. right? Like on every, on you know, multiple scales, and I think he, um, I think he is, he is really, I think he, he is really kind of, I think he's significant, and I think 
But I think that's what it is. I think it, it is, and I think the best of them actually, the most interesting of those guys, people like Corso, some of the, the most interesting guys that come out of the beats, the most interesting of the people coming up the psychedelic movement, actually, they all have that approach. I mean, they're all mm-hmm. that. It's not that they, the reason you can't really separate them out. Mm-hmm. Is because at any one moment they're willing to try. You know, they know that they don't know what's going to work, and they're willing to try like five different things if it's going to get anywhere. But don't you think they arrive at that position after a, a time? Because I feel yeah, like they, 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 I yeah. feel like the beats really start out as this kind of like yeah, absolutely yeah no question. sect almost yeah no right? they do and they yeah. get poli- and, and they get yeah. politicized and some of yeah. them do. I mean Ginsburg not Kerouac no exactly not Kerouac maybe not I mean it's debatable with Burroughs. I mean, right. Ginsburg, you know, there is some politicisation. Like, you're right, yeah. something happens. Something happens in the kind of early to mid-60s where they see the possibility of being something other than this little rebel cell of kind of existential haters of American yeah. culture to be people who will actually try to save America, who will actually be part of that. And I think, but I suspect that's just, I mean, isn't that a reaction to things like civil rights? It's the reaction yeah. to civil rights. It's yeah. the reaction to the fact that the civil rights bill gets passed, you know, the great society bill gets passed. Like, it looks like collective political action can actually deliver something. Whereas if, you, if you're in the 50s, and if you're, if you're coming from where they are, it just looks like everything you liked about America Stasis. has been destroyed. Yeah. And I think you, there's yeah. no way getting out from under the military-industrial complex. So. But I think, because I, 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 we didn't really talk about civil rights today at all, but clearly it's a huge deal. It's easy to every, people all over the world like, look at civil rights and say, shit, they actually, those got, you know, they actually got something. Yeah. And, um, and, that, and I think that has a, this big politicising effect on, on a whole range of people who before that are just at least these. Well, and of course, like one of the major poets of um, the civil rights movement, uh, Leroy Jones or Amiri Baraka, is kind of part of that beat circle as well. And some of the kind of tensions between the avant-garde and the aspiration towards a kind of popular kind of democratic culture that's kind of also avant-garde, despite being, you know, popular, those reproduce themselves in Baraka's kind of efforts to, you know, the black arts movement and so on. He's really not speaking to a mass audience at the end of the day, even though that is his aspiration. And also, and there's fights between him and him and sections of the Panthers over that issue. Yeah. There's sections of the Panthers who who think you've got to use funk and soul as the vehicle, because it's popular because it, and also not only that Coleman right no, exactly yeah. and even, even at their most sophisticated there's some of them are saying because it can reach white working class like allies because it doesn't mm. and then you've got it you've got him like promoting you know, black arts and kind of Afro-nationalism so which right. kind of which reflects back on some of those debates in, in Scotland arguably as well definitely can, can I ask just going back to the question of the state because something that something that um, I think we haven't quite addressed is that what we mean by the state when we're talking about the state that the 1960s counterculture was kind of thinking about or posing itself to is a very different state from the one that we think of today I mean because of the kind of history of of, uh, of neoliberalism that, that you were talking about today Jeremy um, and I wonder what do you have an idea of what kind of um, what kind of lessons we can take from then that that still apply now does mm-hmm. d- does the new situation mm-hmm. where like you know because I guess like the the state in the sixties was was a mediator between between um, you know society and, and capital it was it was it was trying to like find a middle ground in some way 
Whereas now, obviously, the state has been has been kind of taken over by by like the interests of capital, and and therefore has has limited its own possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts on on that? There are many possible answers. I mean, what, one thing I would just argue this this doesn't directly address the question of the relationship between capital and the state, which is a big one. Of course, we need Ralph Miliband, you know. In here. But I think I, I think that there's something about the the nakedness of the state in the '60s versus today, right? I mean, if you think about warfare, like I was reading about the. Uh, March on Washington on its 50th anniversary, sorry, the March on the Pentagon, excuse me, in 1967, October of 67, um, you had thousands, tens of thousands of mostly young people march right up to the Pentagon. Like they cut through the wire fence and they camped out and they were, you know, staring down the barrels of the guns of National Guardsmen. Um, and so there was a sense, I mean, and this, like you were saying, Jeremy, I mean, there was a sense that the state was vulnerable to the counterculture of the new left. Um, this really freaked out J. Edgar Hoover and you know Nixon and all the wrong people. Um, and so I, I just think that like what it means to oppose the state in a very different context where warfare is you know very distant and it's it's mediated through all kinds of technology and it's just it, it's it's the sort of impact of it and its presence are just not as apparent to you know, most people in the country waging the warfare in, in the kind of um, metropole, right? Um, I, I think that just changes the whole nature of what counterculture um, articulates its opposition as being and how it understands itself. Um, and that addresses the question of the state. You know, it's, it's a kind of a visible state versus a less visible, less ever-present state. Mm-hmm. Except rhetorically, it was seen as a sort of Ever present, it was. It was seen as something that was like everywhere, like, re- like repressive and like. When today, like, perhaps it's it's not seen like that, and mm-hmm. yet, like, it probably has like much more sophisticated. Right, that's the irony. Yeah. I would agree with you. Yeah. I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. I think. I think there's also there's always a conceptual question as to whether the state is is a useful concept to begin with. That there's an, I mean the. I mean, there's always an argument that really, you know, the, the, the kind of assemblage of governmental institutions in a kind of highly complex society, especially after like, the New Deal and the post-war so welfare state settlement, you know, it doesn't really conform to the logic of the kind of Marxist and anarchist critiques or the you know, sort of the state from the 19th century, that they contains a whole set of institutions that capital is totally hostile to, they want to destroy, it contains kind of internal conflicts and internal... Uh, uh, attempts. I think there's still some utility. I mean, just from this basic, you know, political science notion of the state. You know, the state is the institution that monopolises violence, and it's everything that's paid for by taxes, and it has that consistency. But there's certainly, like after that moment, after the, the mid-century moment, you're in a much more complicated terrain. And I think, um, so, and I think, I mean, there's two things I want to say about that. One is that, well, I mean, from a contemporary vantage point wasn't visible at all to the kind of counterculture acts of the late 60s. The count, you know, the New Deal is a condition of possibility of the mm-hmm. counterculture. Mm-hmm. You, know, you only get the counter, you get the counterculture once. 
a whole generation, like I keep saying, a whole generation of people, including working class people, are able, have the luxury of being able to off, ask themselves a bunch of existential questions, <laughs> which only like aristocrats like yeah. had the privilege of being able to ask themselves in any previous generation. Like never, not even most of the bourgeois, most of the bourgeois are too locked into, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining their status and like making money to, to ever be able to sit down and ask themselves, well, what does it mean to be a human or a man or a woman? Or what's the point of work? And suddenly, you know, with the wealth, you know, with the success of the welfare state, and, the, and that version of kind of Keynesian Fordist capitalism, you've got a whole generation of people who can all ask themselves those questions, and that's a real condition of possibility for it. And it, it's an interesting, it's a good, it's an important political question now because it's yes. not clear. It's, it's, it's not clear to me. I mean, people. Yeah, I get asked a lot, like, well, how do we have a counterculture now? And, and I try and give answers, but then some, I think, well, sometimes in my darkest moments, I think we just have to restore the welfare state. Like, yeah. it's, it's going to be, my children might get to have a counterculture. I'm not going to get it. Um, I, I, sorry, I could not agree with what Jeremy's saying more. I really think that the kind of material conditions that made possible the counterculture are, like, have to be grappled with. I think that the decommodification of all of these different aspects of life um, education is, of course, a big one, but also healthcare, you know, then as compared to now, thinking of the 60s. Housing. Yeah, housing, exactly. And, and the kind of, you, you read Paul Goodman, um, you read um, Growing Up Absurd, and you get the kind of impression reading it that the worst thing that can happen to you in this society is that you, you finish college, you get a job that, you know, has, you know, security for life with a pension, you get married, you get a house in the suburbs. How awful. And it's like, for my generation, it's like, it's like, oh my God, like what an asshole. But, but, but at the same time, it's like, I, yeah, I think that obviously there's more to life than that. I mean, you go back, you read the Grundrisse, you read part three of Capital, right? And these questions about like history, right? The, the passage from prehistory to history, when like the questions of just unhappiness right actually can be addressed and not the questions of starvation and and the reproduction of the self and i think that that was you know in the 60s it was possible to raise questions about like the post-scarcity horizon and what it would mean to um to live a kind of liberated lifestyle and a liberated culture whatever that might mean and people were working that out um but those questions were available, I think, on a mass scale um, in a way that they're just frankly not at a time when like everything is so monetized and like every decision is so fraught with calculations about like how much debt will this kind of get me into? How is this going to impact me down the line? There's a kind of quantifying kind of logic that's, I think, colonized like all of our kind of decisions in a way that um, makes it very hard to imagine a counterculture. I mean, what you were saying there about the, the Paul Goodman kind of thing, it's, it's, it made me think of The Graduate and like, you know, ben, <laughs> Benjamin's like worst nightmare is that like, he's, he's bored of like lying around in a pool. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but you know, like, but he's, but he's like this sort of like image of like disgruntled youth, but disgruntled youth that sort of like has, ha, like to us looks like it has so much like possibility, but yeah. like, but he doesn't realise it. Mm. Um, which is, yeah. I mean, maybe it's worth saying as well. There's the flip side of that. So the the historical lessons that it's through. Is that real? It is real. It is. Re- I mean, and to some, I mean, there was always a bohemian sort of critique, bohemian anarchist critique of, so, of mainstream socialism, mm-hmm. with through people like the Farge and the anti-work mm-hmm. people, the anarchists, became, going back to the nineteenth century, which said that was what was going to happen. That said. 
the vision of socialism, which they accuse Marx of having and that the Fabians had, would, would, would be so boring, <laughs> stultifying, yeah. that, that people would hate it. And they, I mean, they were saying that, that kind of Bohemians and the Serenians, they, they did say that, and they were right. Mm-hmm. Actually, on some level, they were right. They did make people miserable. Like, it's not... Like, now, on the one hand, we can say, you're right, we all have that response, but what an asshole. But on the <laughs> other hand, people were not happy. It didn't make people happy. It really clearly didn't make people happy. Mm-hmm. And so, maybe that... I mean, that does mean... I mean, that's why... I, I think that is partly underpinning... I think that's partly underpinning what is happening in, in Britain and the States with the fact that, as we were talking about earlier, you know, we, we, there's a resurgent left, which is being led by these people who were from, you know, Bernie was from SDS, and, you know, mm-hmm. Corbyn is from that kind of, you know, far left. Mm-hmm. And it partly is because this, I think people don't have this worked out, like this kind of narrative isn't kind of widely circulated, but there's this kind of, there is this kind of unconscious understanding, actually, that, that actually that kind of mainstream social democracy that produced the world of the 50s and 60s didn't work. Mm-hmm. Didn't, that there is an understanding now that didn't work, that, if we, that we're going to have to challenge neoliberalism with something which isn't just restoring that, mm-hmm. because, because it was just because it did just make people miserable. Yeah. 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 I suppose that's where the kind of communal leisure critique comes in there, the, the sort of Glasgow collective. Um, and they're obviously drawing on things like um, the Paris Commune, Kristen uh, Ross's book, uh, communal luxury and the idea of uh, uh, beauty and art being part of everyday life mm-hmm. and adding leisure into that as a critique of of work um, mm-hmm. and the kind of the inherent goodness of work um, which obviously runs through a lot of uh, socialist uh, um, and Marxist uh, discourse um, as, as well as in sort of cultural scenes as well sort of DIY cultural scenes where you know you, the person who's perceived to do the most work or the most uh, um, going above and beyond is, is is virtuous, and of course that can lead to exploitation, and um, and it's pretty, obviously under austerity and the precarious working conditions, it's more and more difficult to have uh, the time, uh, the sort of physical and mental uh, ability to do that even. Um, so yeah, sort of imagining a world beyond work. Um, a sort of post-scarcity, a world of abundance, you know, and all the kind of ideas of sort of how automation might create sort of, you know, fully automated luxury communism and so on. And, um, although, again, you know, these ideas are problematic and it kind of makes a lot of assumptions about the kind of work that would be automated and, you know, who would be liberated and so on and so forth. But it is interesting that, yeah, we are starting to talk about that, but a fundamental part of that, as you say, is creating the material conditions in which that kind of... Uh, more liberated life as possible. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I wanted to give my thanks to the Institute for the Advanced Study of the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh, where you can find their website at www.iash.ed.ac.uk. I also wanted to thank uh, Jeremy Gilbert, Ben Serby, and Stuart Smith. Um, As always, my co-host, Mark DeSoto. And uh, I wanted to thank all of the participants at the New Approaches to Counterculture conference. This has been the Savage Reading Podcast, and we hope to have a few more episodes up very soon. And thanks for listening. Mm